to me is not only a friend, a warrior, but he's truly a theologian, an apologist, an evangelist, truly an expert in his field. And I'm talking about Jay Smith. It's been a long time since we've had Jay. He's probably the, the most renowned uh, man in the world fighting for Muslims to see the truth that their God is bankrupt, but the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob lives. And I have to tell you, uh, we respect him tremendously. My chagrin is that I'm not here tonight to enjoy his presence and his fellowship, but you will hear the word of God from Jay Smith. So church family, give a warm welcome to our good friend and missionary at large, Jay Smith. now can you all hear me yeah. all right I've got to live up to that <laughs> I'm gonna do something that's unique I don't think it's ever been done before I'm gonna be shutting down Muhammad tonight and the Quran tonight and Mecca and I'm gonna do it all three tonight using only evidence from the seventh century from the century where this man lived from the century where this book supposedly was revealed and from the century where this city existed. So bear with me, that's an awful lot to shut down, and I've got to do it in one hour. So I'm going to ask that you don't look at me. I want you to look at the screens, because we're going to zip through this material. Put your pens down. You're not going to keep up. <laughs> Stop talking to your neighbors. They'll probably be looking up here instead. And afterwards, because of the fact it's going to take a whole hour and probably a little bit more to do this, I, won't do, I want to hear what your questions are, but I can't do it from here, so we're going to shut down the, the meeting, and then I'm going to come back out here in the, in the front. And if any of you have questions you want to throw at me, please do. But before I do, I do want to introduce some books that my good friend George Sag, who's in the back. When you go to the foyer, please look at this book. This is the book that really confronts the Quran. Uh, it's put by Abdullah Abd al-Fadi. Uh, the one that I'm going to be talking about is this book. That's going to be on later on in the, uh, the, the talk today. This is the number one book that has really shut down the manuscripts of the Quran. I'll be talking about some of the Muslim objections, but this is by Claire Tisdall. This has been around for 100 years, and I don't know why I'm supposed to flog this, because this is, this is me going through the British Museum looking at the Bible as the, uh, as the alternative to the Quran. But this is a... Uh, a video, a DVD that helps you with that. So let's get right into the historical critique of Islam. A quick overview, emphasis on quick. So let's head on. What am I going to do? I'm going to look at four areas. I'm going to look at the problem with the sources. Then I'm going to hit Mecca, go from there to Muhammad, and then from there to the Quran. We're going to end with the Quran because it's by far the most damaging material. Much of what I'm going to be introducing tonight, most of you have never seen before. And if you have, well, great, God bless you, because then you'll probably understand a little bit. But most of you, this will be new. What are the claims that the Muslims make concerning the standard Islamic narrative, S-I-N? Isn't that great, sin? We're going to shut down sin tonight. The standard Islamic narrative is the, are their traditions. This is what every Muslim needs to know. Though every Muslim, whether they are radical or nominal or liberal, 
how they walk, talk, eat, drink, sleep is dependent on those traditions, on the standard Islamic narrative. Now, they all believe, every Muslim would believe that Muhammad was the last and greatest prophet, born in Mecca in 570, died in Medina in 632, modeled Islam for the, as a paradigm for the whole world, and received the Quran as his final revelation. Therefore, the Quran is his revelation, sent down between 610 and 632, it is the greatest, the only perfectly preserved revelation according to Islam, the final revelation, and it corrects everything that has gone before. Therefore, Islam, naturally, they would say, is their final religion based on Muhammad's life and saying, that's the Sunnah and on the Quran's teachings. Conclusion, well, obviously, they're dependent on three things, the book, the man, and the place. And that's what we're going to confront tonight, the book, the man, and the place. The book, the Quran, the man, Muhammad, and the place, Mecca. Since all three are foundational to Islam, without one of them, the others two fall, we should investigate all three, and we're going to do that tonight. But in the 7th century, and in the central part of Arabia, the Hejaz, where Mecca and Medina are placed, to do that, we need to start with the sources. Where are we going to go? Where did all these stories come from? Everything we know about Muhammad, everything we know about Mecca, everything we know about the book itself has to come from a source. Now, let's go and look at that source, because this will underline why there's a problem with everything else tonight. Now, to be that, I want you to look at this map. Here's a map of the Middle East of Arabia. According to the standard Islamic narrative, Muhammad's empire encompassed that brown area. So look at the brown area. That was where, that's what existed in Islam up until 632 when he died. Then what they tell us is the Rashidun period came into existence. That's Abu Bakr, Umar, Uthman, and Ali. The first, next four caliphs, they encompass that orange area. So there is the expansion moving out, and then you have the Umayyad dynasty, which is the first real big caliphate, according to them. That's the purple area. I don't care too much about the purple area tonight. I want to look at the brown and the orange area, okay? That's the area I want to look at. So from Tripoli in the west all the way to Afghanistan in the east, from Turkey in the north down to Yemen in the south. Bear with me. Let's go to it. Now here's what they say. This is their narrative. This is not my narrative. They say that Muhammad was born in 570. The Quran was revealed in, beginning in 610. He then moves up and goes up from Mecca all the way up to Jerusalem, goes up to the eight, seven heavens, meets Allah, comes down, meets Moses, and finds out that he's to pray 50 times. Moses says, get it down. So he bounces back and forth between the seventh and the fifth heaven and gets it from 50 down to 30, down to 20, down to 10, down to five prayers. So that happens in 621. He then moves out of Mecca, moves up to Medina in 622, comes and takes over Mecca and defeats Mecca in 633, and then dies in 632. So that's the life of Muhammad according to their traditions. Once he dies, Abu Bakr takes over for two years. He dies peacefully. And then comes Umar who takes over uh, for 10 years. He does not die peacefully. He is killed. And then, of course, Uthman takes over, and he lasts for about 12 years before he is killed. But while he is there as the caliph, the Quran is finalized. So the Quran, the book we're going to look at tonight, was created. This book that I have in my hands right here is from Uthman. That's what every Muslim will tell you. And then when he is killed, Ali takes over, and he only lasts about five years before he is defeated there at the Battle of Sifan by Mu'awiyah. So, conclusion, Islam was fully formed in the Hijaz by 661. That's what they say. Do you all believe that? We'll say yes for now, okay? In about an hour, you can say no. But for now, let's just say yes. Go with me. Now, here's the question. Everything I've just told you, how in the world and where do you get it from? 
Well, you would hope that it comes from people that were actually living at that time, right? And from people who are actually living there, right? Eyewitnesses, like we have with Jesus. Matthew, he was an eyewitness. John, he was an eyewitness. You would hope the same thing would work with Islam. Well, let's go and see what we find. In order to know who Muhammad was, everything that we happened, everything that I've just showed you, we need to go back to the sources for all these stories. Now, Muhammad dies in 632. The first source we get are his, what we know is his biography, known as the Sira. So who wrote the biography? Somebody who knew Muhammad, right? No. The first one they claim who writes it down was Ibn Ishaq, who died in 765. That's 130 years after Muhammad. Is there a problem there, folks? Okay, you're coming with me. Let's get near you. But we don't have Ibn Ishaq. We have to go to this guy here, Ibn Hisham. He is the one that actually writes down what Ibn Ishaq says, throws out most of it, and only retains what he likes. He dies in 833. After him comes Al-Waqidi, who dies in 835. That's what we know about Muhammad. Nothing from Ibn Ishaq. So let's just get rid of Ibn Ishaq. Whoop, whoop, there he goes. But that's not the only thing we have. That's not the only. We have an enormous amount of material on Muhammad on what he says. This is known as the Hadith. And the sayings, these are the sayings of what Muhammad said. They were first written by, down by Al-Buhari. Now look at his date, 870. You thought, you thought Ibn Ishaq was bad enough. This is 240 years after the fact. And after him, there's others like Sahih Muslim, Ibn Dawud, you have Tirmidhi, you have Majah, you have Abda, uh, and then you have Inasai. So those are the six, uh, uh, what they thought, authoritative hadith compilations that were put down. But look at, they're all in the 9th and 10th century, right? And then you have one more, two more uh, genre of what we know as a standard Islamic narrative, the Tafsir and the Tahik. The Tafsir would be the commentaries which explain the Quran, and then, of course, the tafsir, which would be the histories of all mankind up until Muhammad. First written down by Al-Tabari. Look at his date. He died in 923. Now, I'm putting you their death dates purposely because everything was written normally within 20 years of their death dates. That's when they would be written. But it could be changed and continue manipulated all right up until they died. Notice, everything I've showed you doesn't even begin to get written down for 200 years. 200 years after Muhammad died, you get the Sirah, then you get the Hadith, another 240 years, and it's not till the 10th century that you even get the Tafsir and the Tahrik. Abdul Malik's name I'm putting up there because he's the first one to introduce us to a, anybody called Muhammad. Look when he introduced that. He introduces it in 692. Muhammad died in 632. You've got 60 years before he's even introduced into the world stage. Does that bother any of you? But the Muhammad we're going to talk about, the Muhammad of Islam, that Muhammad was introduced by these people, the Abbasids. And they do so, they come to power in 749. The Muhammad that we look at is all their invention. And they had 84 years to finally get down his biography and about 100 years to get down his sayings and, of course, the other two genres. So, Muhammad was revealed 84 years after the Abbasids created him, 141 years after he was first introduced, Yet 200 years after he supposedly lived, these are all too late. Now, on top of that, let's take a look at the people that introduced him. Look where they lived. Everything we've been told, they say, happens in Mecca, Medina. That's the Hijaz. That's the central part of Arabia, those two green circles. Yet all of the writers of those traditions worked in Baghdad, which is 1,200 miles too far to the north. You have Ibn Isham, who was born in Basra. Uh, he grew up in Cairo. 
but he did his work in, in, in Baghdad. Cairo is 900, over 990 miles from Mecca. Basra is 1,200 miles from Mecca. You have al-Buhari, who writes the Hadith. He is from Bukhara, which is Uzbekistan. That's 2,600 miles away. Al-Tabari, who wrote the Tafsir and the Tahrik. He comes from Tabaristan, northern Iran. That's 1,700 miles away. None of the traditional writers lived or worked or in Mecca or Medina. They were all too far to the north of Mecca and came from the west and east of Baghdad. All of these northern areas is where the Abbasids originated from. Are you starting to get the picture? There's a problem here. Everything we know about the man Muhammad, everything we know about the Quran, everything we know about Mecca comes from two to three hundred years later and hundreds of miles further north. Too late and too far away. Okay, so you say, well, the same happens in Christianity. We've got the same problem, do we? Let's do the same application. Let's look at our tafsir. Let's look at our hadith. In fact, let's put the same genre that we've just looked at for knowing who the book, the man, and the place is, and let's apply it to Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ also has a sitta, or that's the biography of Jesus written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Am I correct? He also has a hadith. Those are the sayings by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John when it's written in red letters. Every time Jesus speaks, that's red letters. So we also have the hadith of Jesus. We also have the tafsir. Those would be the commentaries written by Paul. Again, the commentaries of what Jesus was saying and doing, Paul then applied to Ephesus and up to Corinth and to Philippi. So that would be the comment, commentaries. And then we also have the tahrik, which would be the histories. That's the book of Acts, written by Luke. So you have the exact same four genre in Christianity that they have in Islam. Now let's apply the dates for all of them. And I'm going to take the most liberal dates I can find. I'm going to step on all of your toes. Please don't get mad at me. I'm doing it for a reason. So let's look at, first of all, the tahrik of Jesus, the history of the early church written by Luke between 52 and 62 AD. That's within 20 to 30 years you already have the tahrik of Jesus written down. When you look at the tafsir of Paul's letters, he was killed in 65 AD. He was writing within 15 years of Christ's death. So within 50 to 34 years, you already have Paul's, uh, you already have Paul's commentaries, the tafsir written down. As far as the sira and the hadith, the first writer to write them down would be Mark. 70 AD, that's within 37 years. You have Matthew and Luke coming right along 80 years after. And then finally we end with John, who is the last to write the Siddha and the Hadith of Jesus. That's within 57 years. What that means is that within 29 to 57 years, all of Christ's Hadith, Siddha, Tafsir, and Tahik have been put together. All of the New Testament writers lived in the same place Jesus lived, and they either knew him personally like John and Matthew did, or they got the material from others who saw what he did and heard what he said, like Mark and Luke. Two, you do a comparative between these two. When we compare these two different genres of literature, Christianity knows everything about the book, the man and the place, within 15 to 60 years. Islam has to wait two to 300 years. Which do you think is more authoritative? Look at the comparison, folks. Thank God we don't have that problem. As a comparison, if we were to depend on the sources for Jesus compared to what Muslims are dependent on for Muhammad, Jesus would not begin to appear until the third century. How would we defend him? Yet no one's asking the same question of Islam until we are now going to do it tonight. So I'm going to make it one step further. Remember I just got done telling you that Ibn Hisham wrote the Siddha of Jesus and he died in 833 and that's 200 years after the fact? You heard me say that, right? I lied. We have nothing from Ibn Hisham. 
Nothing has been written that was written by this man in the ninth century. So where did this book, this is the book you all have to read. If any of you do any study on Muhammad, you have to read The Life of Muhammad written by Alfred Guillaume. This is the standard work that everybody has to go to. Where do you think it comes from? It doesn't come from Ibn Hisham. It comes from this gentleman right here, Heinrich Ferdinand Wustenfeld, a German scholar, an Arabist, living in the 1800s, who for two years between 1858 and 1860 went to four different German cities, this is in Europe, to different schools and certainly different libraries, and he just started putting together everything he could find on this man named Muhammad. Put it together in that two-year period and published it in 1860. That is the biography that all of you have to read because that was taken by Alfred Guillaume that translated to first into French and then into English. Everything we know about Muhammad comes from that German scholar and it's only 160 years old. The man who Muslims are dependent on to know who their prophet is or what he did is an elderly German linguist who wrote Muhammad's story 160 years ago, thus over 1,000 years too late. Can you imagine how they're going to defend this? How, if there's any Muslims here, how will you defend your prophet now? Looking how late everything is concerning what he did there in supposedly the 7th century. You can see then the dilemma for scholars today. Their conclusions are Islam as we know it did not exist in the 7th century, but evolved over a period of two to 300 years. The Quran probably was not revealed to one man in 22 years, like Muslims tell us, but likely evolved over a period of 50 to 100 years. The conclusion, the history of Islam, at least from the time of the Caliph Abdul Malik, 685 to 705 and before, is a later fabrication. A later fabrication. Now, if that were the case, the problem is, well, what are we going to do? How is it you can see what their concern is. They said, well, where do we need to go? Well, I would suggest let's go back to the seventh century. Since we can't trust the ninth and 10th century for what Muhammad was doing or how, what the Quran was in the ninth and 10th century, let's go back to the century Muhammad lived, let's go back to the century if Mecca existed, and let's go back to the century that book was written. So let's start with Mecca. Why do I wanna start with Mecca? You'll see why. Mecca is enormously important. Remember, Islam is dependent on three legs. You take out one of the legs, the other two collapse. So if you start with the book, the man, and the, and, uh, and the place for the three legs, if you start to confront Mecca, it starts to teeter. Once you shut down Mecca, everything else collapses. Because if there is no Mecca, then it doesn't matter who Muhammad is or what the name is or where you find him, he's not in Mecca, right? And if he's not in Mecca, then what Muhammad are we talking about? And it doesn't matter what Quran we're looking at, it's not from Mecca. If it's not from Mecca, bingo, then you've got a different Quran. So let's shut down Mecca first. Let's begin with Mecca and let's see what we can find. Now this is what they claim. According to the traditions, according to the standard Islamic narrative, Mecca is where Adam and Eve are thrown down to. In chapter 7, verse 24 in the Quran, they're thrown out of the Garden of Eden down to Mecca. So obviously this is the oldest city in history, right? You have to have people to have a city. And there's no one before Adam and Eve. So it's obviously the oldest city in history. It's where Abraham lived according to chapter 21 of the Quran, verse 51 to 71. That's 1900 BC. Therefore, it had to have existed then. Sorry, let's go back. It's also the center of trade, north, south, east, and west. So it should be one of the best known and best documented places in history. Now, it's also, according to the Quran, the, the, the center of history. But here's the problem. Open up the Quran and see if you can find that word Mecca in it you'll only find it one time. 
in chapter 48, verse 24. So it's not a book, it's not a place that's referred to very often except for once. It's the place of the prophet. So let's look and see what it says about the place of the prophet in the Quran. Well, that's the mother of all settlements, according to chapter 6. It's where Adam and Eve were cast to, according to chapter 7. It's where Abraham lived, according to chapter 21. It's where Muhammad was born. And it was also where Mecca became the center of the Qibla, the direction of prayer, according to chapter 2. Now, the above imply people have lived there from the very beginning. Yet the only reference we can find is chapter 48, 24. If it's such an important place, why is there only one reference? If you look at the traditions, which are written much later, they're written in the 9th and 10th century, Mecca now does exist. That's not a problem. But take a look at where it places it. Notice what the traditions say. This place of the prophet, which is Mecca, is in a valley, and has a parallel valley. It has a stream. It has ruins of a pillar of salt right outside it. It has fields and trees and grass and fruit and clay and loam and olive trees. Folks, that looks like it's pretty, pretty verdant. Am I correct? Lots of vegetation. Lots of water. Look at Mecca. There is no streams. There is none of these in Mecca, and there never has been. Historically, it's never had water. So obviously, whatever the traditions are referring to, it's not the Mecca we know today. When you look and up, unpack the Quran and you look at it, you will notice that an awful lot of it refers to geographical locations, 65 geographical references, but only nine places are named. And over and over again, it refers to these people from Ad. Nine t- uh, 23 times these people from Ad, that's the biblical Uz. 24 times the people from Thamud, that would be the Nabataeans. Uh, seven times the people from Midian, they're the Midianites. But take a look on the map and see where they're all placed. They're up, up in Jordan. Mecca is at the very bottom of the map. Do you see it down there? There's 600 miles. If this prophet were having daily contact with these people from Ad Thamud in Midian, he'd have to have a helicopter or a jet to get up and back in 1,200 miles in just one day. They didn't have helicopters back then. Can you see a problem, folks? Obviously, whoever this prophet is who's having this relationship with all these people either had to live up there or this is nothing more than fiction. When we look at the prophets, prophet after prophet, Adam and Eve, Seth, Ishmael, Noah, Hud, Saleh, Queen of Sheba, Daniel, they were all buried in Mecca. Over almost 300 prophets are buried in Mecca. Now, when they're buried, they're buried in a kneeling position so that they continue to be preserved in that kneeling position. If that were the case, then they still should be there today. Am I correct? So look at all the enormous amount of building that's going on around Mecca. That building that you see there, that tower, is the fourth highest building in the world. When you look at it, you will notice all the buildings around it. You have to have huge foundations in order to build something that high. As they're building these foundations, they should have come across one prophet. They haven't found one suggesting that none of these prophets were buried there. If the above were true, this would mean that almost all of the Bible would have to be rewritten as all of our prophets are 600 to 1,000 miles further south. So when is the first reference you can find to Mecca? It comes from the Apocalypse of Pseudo-Methodius, Continuato, Byzantia, Arabica, 741 A.D. Muhammad died in 634, 632, if he even lived. That's over a hundred years later that we get the first reference of him. What about the maps? Is, he on, is Mecca on any map? Ptolemy is the best, best source to go to because he wrote the geography of Arabia. And there are those who've taken his geography and put maps together like Leinhard Hole in the 1400s. Notice when you look at the map, Mecca is not there. Here's another one put together by Laurent Fries in 1541. Notice Mecca is not there as well. Here's another one putting what Ptolemy said, uh, put together in 1571, put together by Sebastian Munster, 
Same problem. Mecca just doesn't exist on any of these maps. Here's a 7th century map that has been redacted back to the 7th century. Did you see Mecca on it? I don't. Here's another one. Redacted back to the 7th century. Can you find Mecca on any of these maps? Not one. So certainly Ptolemy didn't know about this place. When you look at the Qiblas, these are all the direction of prayers. Now remember, in chapter 2 of the Quran, all the Qiblas were directed to Mecca according to the Quran itself. Dan Gibson, who's done the best work on this, and he has gone through over 100 mosques, and he's gone to all their Qiblas, and notice what he has found. From the 7th century up until the 8th century, up until 706, every Qibla is facing Petra. Not one Qibla is facing Mecca. We're in the 8th century. We still can't find any mosque facing Mecca. It's not till 715 that the first mosque faced Mecca. What does that tell you? For 100 years, they never knew where Mecca was. And in fact, look where all these Qiblas are. They're, in, they're in, right there in Medina, in China, in India, in Syria, in Egypt, in Israel, in Jordan, all over the world. And yet none of them seemed to know where Mecca was. For over 100 years, they didn't know where Mecca was. Were they that inept? Or did Mecca even exist? Now we come to the trade route theory. And this is where Montgomery Watt has helped out the Muslims. He tried to help them out to show that you can find Mecca if you just look at the trade route. The trade went through Mecca. Now the trade used to go this way, right up through the Persian Gulf to Basra, across Iraq, across Syria, over into Lebanon. But then you had the Sassanians who started warring against the Byzantines. And for 200 years from the 5th, 6th, and 7th century, they shut down the Persian Gulf because of these wars. So the trade had to be rerouted. So what Montgomery Watt says is they went from India. And remember, all the trades coming from China and India, they can't go north because of the Hindu Kush and the Himalayas. So they come across the Arabian Sea, they come to Aden there in the south, and they go zip 1,250 miles up to Gaza in the north. Now notice Mecca's halfway. And so he said Mecca controlled that trade, and that's how Mecca became important. How many of you believe that? No one's going to raise their hands? You know why, because I'm going to shut it down. But I'm not going to shut it down. Dr. Patricia Corona shut this down. This woman, Danish, read and wrote... 15 archaic languages. How many of you could read and write 15 archaic languages? Probably the greatest scholar of her day. She just, uh, she just died a number of years ago. She was my authority. She was the one that helped me when I started my doctorate there in the uh, United Kingdom. And she looked at this map and she saw two problems. Let's see if you see the same two problems. This is the first one. She said, hold on a minute. If you're taking all the goods off in Aden and you're going up along what we call the Western Plateau where the oases are, you'd have to go up to Taif and then from Taif, you have to go down to Mecca, 3,000 feet. And then from Mecca, you've got to go back up to Yathrib. And then from Yathrib on up to Tabuk, Khaybar, and then on up to Gaza in the north. Do you see a detour there? Can you see the detour? Let me ex emphasize exactly why she's saying this. Let's look at this topographical map. And let's just put these cities that are on the trade route. There's Aden, there's Sana, there's Hanajran, there's Taif, there's Yathrib, Tabuk, Petra, and then on up to Gaza. You notice they're all on the western plateau. Are you seeing that? Can you see it from this topographical map? So where's Mecca? Bingo, right there. 3,000 feet down from Taif. Let me give you another map. Here's another one, a topographical line map. There's Aden, there's Sana, there's Najran, there's Taif. Now you can see Yathrib. There's Tabuk, Petra, and Gaza. So where's Mecca? Bingo. Now can you see? It's way off the western plateau. It had no water. Why would you go from Taif down 3,000 feet to a city that are a place that had no water and no food for your camels and then come back up 3,000 feet to get up to Yathrib? So that was the first problem. 
But here's the second problem. She said, why in the world would they even get up, get their uh, material off in Aden and go 1,250 miles by land when they have a waterway on the left? Why wouldn't you just stay on ship? Even today, look how all our goods are sent all over the world. They're sent by ship, are they not? It's the cheapest way to send anything. And you've got the Red Sea there on the left. So why didn't they go on the Red Sea? Now, she's clever because she reads and writes 15 languages. She went back to all the trading documents from the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, all the way up to the 7th century, something no Muslim has ever done. And she wrote a book called Meccan Trade and the Rise of Islam in 1987 and got death threats because of what she found. This is what she found. She said, when you go and watch the trade, it comes across the Arabian Sea over to Aden. Yeah, it did stop in Aden. They would get provisions there. But it did stop there. They wouldn't take off any goods there. They would go up into the Red Sea. They would go to Agilis. And she found Agilis over and over again. And then from Agilis, went up the Red Sea, on up to Petra, and then from Petra to Gaza, and then from Gaza right across the Mediterranean world. That's what she found. But she didn't go far enough. That was in 1987. We have found something else. See, what she didn't realize is what part of the Red Sea and what side of the Red Sea did they go up? To do that, you need to look at topographical maps from space, and you need to see where the channels are. Do you see the dark blue line there, right in the middle of the Red Sea? There, I'm going to put a red line on it so you can see it even better. That's where the big ships go today. But back in the 7th century, they didn't have big ships. So where did they go? They went where the orange lines are, the golden lines. Those are the channels that the boats use. Notice they're not on the Arabian side, they're on the African side. Am I correct? So, unlike the East Arabian shore, which was arid and dry with no fresh water and thus few people, the West African shore had plenty of fresh water and had larger populations. What's more, the West Coast had ex easily accessible ports. We know their names. Here they are. The ports along them are Asab, Agilis, Continuan, Suakin, Berenice, and Safaga. Look at the dates. They all predate Islam. Notice they're all one day's boat ride apart. So they would go in every night to, to shelter. These have been around since the 3rd century BC. On the Red Sea side, I'm sorry, on the Arabian side of the Red Sea, the only port that we know of is called Yanbu, which supported Yathrib. So what about Jeddah? which supports Mecca. Muslims have always asked me, well, then didn't Jeddah exist also? Dr. John Halting, who is the world authority on Jeddah, wrote his book on it. And if you look at his book, he says Jeddah did not exist until the 8th century AD. It was created because Mecca was created. Mecca had no water. Therefore, it needed provisions. That's why they created Jeddah. Therefore, since there was nothing, let's get rid of Jeddah and Mecca. Boom, they go off the screen. Without Jeddah, without Mecca, what happens to Islam? A big red X. Well then, what about the civilizations? Maybe they knew about this place. So let's ask, and Dr. Patricia Kuna went around, she asked this question. If Mecca was the oldest city in the history of mankind, someone somewhere should have heard of it. So she went and she looked and I looked at all the empires to see what they said. Now remember, she reads and writes 15 languages. She, so she read, read everything in its original tongue. The Assyrians, she found nothing about Mecca. The Babylonians, they knew nothing about Mecca. The Roman Empire knew nothing about Mecca. Neither did the Persians. What about those closer to it? Much more, uh, much closer, like the Nabataeans. They knew nothing about Mecca. And the Sabaeans knew nothing. And neither did the Himyarites or the Azdis or the Kindas or the Kedarites. None of these people, including the Nubians right across the Red Sea, none of them had heard of Mecca. Not one word. All the way up until the 8th century. What does that say about Mecca to you folks? 
If it is the center of history, if it's the oldest city in history, if it's where Abraham lived, if all the trade now north, south, east, west is going through it, why had no one heard of it? Well, what about the other cities that were in that area? Let's ask and see if they are, because there are a lot of cities in that area, or towns, not really cities, they're hamlets, and let's see if history knows about them. Let's look at Najran, which is about 400 miles south of it, a small little town. But Strabo talks about it, Pliny the Elder talks about it, Ptolemy talks about it, Aretas, all of it, it's well known. What about Sana in Taif, in Yathrib and Chaybar that are right near Mecca? Yes, they're well known. The Greeks talk about it from the 6th century BC, they refer to these places. Mamra, Pliny has a whole book written on the history of it. Petra, Joukowsky has written an entire book on the history of Petra. Ma'riv, where Muhammad, uh, Muhammad Marikdan has written another history on it. Why are all these insignificant towns referred to, but none of them, not one of them, referred to Mecca? I'll tell you why. To know why, take a look at a map, and you'll see why. Look at those four maps. Those are to four topographical uh, pictures of Arabia. And what do you notice about Mecca and Medina? Well, the central part where Medina and Mecca are, are is a desert, Right? Where there's the desert, there's no water. Where there's no water, there's no food. Where there's no food, there's no people. Where there's no people, there's no towns. Where there's no towns, there's no cities. Where there's no cities, there's no civilization. Where there is no civilization, there is no history. It's as simple as that. How long did it take me to say that? Ten seconds. And you can do the same. You have to have water, folks. If there's no water, there's no history. That's why it was called Petraea Deserta by the Romans. It's always been a desert. That's why none of the prophets could have come there. Nobody has ever heard of it. Just like Mars, without water, there's no point even going there. <laughs> but we have to go there. Let's go to the Hajj. Because the Hajj is where you need to find out. If the Hajj has been there from the very beginning, then it should be also archaic. It should be the center of history. Am I correct? When you go to the Hajj, and those of you who can't go because you're not Muslims, but you go and you circumambulate that square building called the Kaaba seven times. Why do you circumambulate seven times going counterclockwise? Good question. I'm going to tell you. To do that, you need to go to Petra. Petra also has a Kaaba that you circumambulate seven times going counterclockwise. Why does it have a Kaaba. Well, you need to go to this city. Do you recognize it? Jerusalem. You've got to go back to Jerusalem that also have a Kaaba. Remember, Kaaba means square in Arabic. It also means square in Hebrew. And the Kaaba in Hebrew was the Holy of Holies. And the Jews would circumambulate it seven times going counterclockwise because of Jericho. God told them to do it seven times going counterclockwise. They still did it as a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Therefore, the Kaaba that was in Mecca is, comes from Jerusalem. It gets better than that. After they circumambulate seven times, they then run back and forth between Safa and Marwa, the two mountains that are there. Take a look. Do those look like mountains to you? They're only about 20 feet high. You can climb on them as kids. Those are not mountains. Those are rocks. They're called Marwa and Safa. And the Muslims run back and forth seven times. Why? Because Hagar is in the desert. She's thrown out of Mecca by Abraham, who's living in Mecca. She runs out of water. She needs to find water for Ishmael. She runs in back and forth seven times between two mountains. Folks, those don't look like mountains to me. In fact, hold on a minute. They're only 100 feet away from the Kaaba, which is in the center of Mecca. If she's out in the desert and she can't find water, then what, are the, she's only, what is she only doing 100 feet away? Why don't she just knock on any door and get some water for the neighbors? Can you see there's a problem here, folks? This is not the original Marwa and the original Safa. This is nothing more than a facsimile. This is nothing more than when you go to Las Vegas, you'll see an Eiffel Tower there, right? That's not the original Eiffel Tower. You'll see a pyramid there. That's not the original pyramid. They're nothing more than facsimiles. That's what you're looking at. So where is the original Marwa and Safa? 
It's not, though some people think it's in Petra. You need to go to Jerusalem. Go to Mount Moriah, where the Temple Mount is. What is the name for Mar Moriah in Arabic? Marwa. You go down to the Gidron Valley and go back up to Mount Scopus. That's what the pilgrims all did. And what is the name of Mount Scopus in Arabic? Safa. So the original Marwa, the original Safa are in Jerusalem. God bless the Muslims. All they did was plagiarize. Everything is plagiarized in Islam. When you look at the Hajj, you can see that the Kaaba is plagiarized. You can see that the Safa and Marwa are plagiarized. You can see that the Hill of Arafat, I don't have time to get into it, that's plagiarized. You can see the Jamarats where they throw 49 stones. Why 49? Because it's a multiplication of seven, which is the holy number in, in Judaism. They've just plagiarized from the Christians. You look at the Zamzam well, that is the same thing, the same word that is used for Mount, the, the well there in Siloam, the pool of Siloam in Jerusalem. And then we get to the black stone. Thank God this is not plagiarized. What in the world is the black stone doing there on the eastern corner of the Kaaba? Every Muslim, as they circumambulate, they kiss the stone so that they get their sins forgiven. Who can forgive sins but God? This is idolatry, folks. And it's at the very seat of Islam. The very center of Islam is based on idolatry. If Muslims say God is one, then what's that stone doing there? That does not come from Jerusalem. Do you understand that? I'm not going to go into it because I see I'm running out of time. I need to keep going. Look and go up on Fander Films. We've got all of it up there. We're now unpacking all of this material so you can see it. So can you see? No one could find Mecca place in the Quran. Crone pretty much debunked the trade route theory. Gibson debunked the Kiblas. Uh, we, I'm sorry, Crone also debunked. She not only debunked that, but she also debunked the, the maps. And then we debunked the base, the trade route going through the Red Sea. And then, of course, the five stages of the Hajj. Though Mecca has existed since Adam and Eve in Surah chapter 7, verse 24, there is no evidence of it anywhere until 741. And everything we now find in Mecca, we could find pine previously in Petra and now even earlier in Jerusalem. You ready for Muhammad? What do we know about Muhammad? Well, last and greatest prophet according to Islam, modeled Islam for the world, received the Quran, has a final revelation. Everything we know about him, we can find in the Siddha of Idim Sham, but as I now said, it looks like that comes from a German scholar named Wustenfeld and the Hadith of Bukhari. We don't have anything from al-Bukhari until the 11th century. And the eight of his nine volumes don't appear to the 16th century. The same problem we're having with the Quran. We'll get to that in just a bit. Now, is he referred to in the 7th century in the time period he supposed lives? If he did exist, someone should have known about him, right? Or said something about him. So what we need to do, let's start with the coins. Because the coins, if there's any caliph coming to power, the first thing a caliph will do or a king will do, will mint coins with his name on it, his image on it, and also what denomination he belongs to, what religion he belongs to, and the date of the coin, right? That's what all they all do in those ancient days because they didn't have newspapers, they didn't have TV, they didn't have radio. They knew that everybody would touch points. So let's see where the mints are. According to Islam, everything that the caliphs did was in Medina, which is in the south there in Hijaz. But when you look at the mints, notice where all the mints are. The mints are all up there in Syria, Jordan, and Israel today. Those are the western mints. What about the ones in the east? They're all in what is today Iran and Iraq. There are no mints whatsoever where they're supposed to be. All the coins were minted too far north. Did I not say that earlier, too far north? What's interesting is when you look at the coins themselves, the conclusion is none of these mints were in the Hijaz, and instead they were too far north, possibly because the Hijaz was a desert with no water, and where there is no water, you know the rest of the story. Let's then look at the coins, because the coins were being minted by people who were living at that time, and they were leaders. 
Notice that when you look at the mints, uh, the look at the coins from the 7th century, 620, 630, 640, 650, up until 661, you notice that almost all the coins are Christian. Look at the crosses on them. That's what you do. You put the cross in if you're a Christian. We can't find any coins whatsoever in the early 7th century that has anything to do with Islam, anything to do with Muhammad, anything to do with the Quran, or anything to do with Mecca. Not at all. So when we get to Mu'awiyah, who is the first caliph according to the Islam from the Umayyad dynasty, Mu'awiyah, the first caliph, look at his coins. He's supposed to be a good Muslim, right? But take a look. What does he have above his head? A cross. Take a look at the two that are on the right there. Look at the two bottom ones there. There's Mu'awiyah. He has a cross above his head. He's holding a cross in his hand. On the back side of the coin is the word Muhammad, which is Muhammad. That's the first reference to Muhammad anywhere. And that's 663. Possibly, is he Muhammad? No. What does Muhammad mean in Arabic? The praised one. So who's the praised one? Well, if he's holding a cross and he's got a cross, who do you think the praised one is? What's his name? Jesus. Thank you. Let's prove that. So let's go to an inscription that Mu'awiyah put that. This is an inscription by Mu'awiyah. There's his name. And he refers to himself as the servant of God, commander of the believers. And what does he have right there in the top left? A cross. So who is he a servant of God for? And what believers? Christians. He was a Christian, folks. All the coins say so. They don't lie. This is the 7th century. He rules up until 680, and then you have Abdul Malik come to power in 685. Abdul Malik is the one that we need to look at because he introduces new coins that introduce the Shahada. La ilaha illallah Muhammadur Rasulullah. There is only one God but God. Muhammad is nothing more than the servant of God. But remember, the Muhammad is a title. It means the praised one, right? So what does he do? Because of the, he puts that up there, Justinian II goes to war with him. He's the Byzantine emperor. Abdul Malik wins the battle and he puts up this coin with himself as victorious. I didn't know you could put up images of yourself on your coins. Not if you're a Muslim. So obviously he's not a Muslim. Obviously this Muhammad that's there has nothing to do with him. It has everything to do with Jesus. Why? Just look at the Dome of the Rock that he built. Look at the inscriptions on the Dome of the Rock that he built in 691. When you look at the inscriptions, you will see they're all attacking the divinity of Jesus, his Christology, the Trinity, and his sonship. All of these inscriptions say not three, for God is one and he has no son. For truly, God does not beget it, nor is he begotten. One is in chapter 4, verse 171 of the Quran. The other is in chapter 112. These are all attacking Jesus Christ. And then you get, for truly, there is only one God but God. And the praised one, so who's the praised one? It's all about Jesus, right? So the praised one is nothing more than the messenger of God. He was an anti-Trinitarian Christian. Attacking the Byzantine Christianity. Why? Because they're his greatest threat as the other superpower of his day. He then introduces this coin. This is my coin. I bought it now. And all of it is attacking Jesus Christ. Folks, this is the beginning of what later became Islam. All started by this man, and it was all to confront Jesus Christ. It's all against our Lord. The coins don't lie. If you want to go to the inscriptions, the inscriptions that find the exact same thing. They're found in the north. They're found in the south. None of them are found in the middle. Why do you think they're not found in the middle? There's no water. There you go. Boy, you learn fast. <laughs> Ilka Lindstad is the one who dated the, uh, he was the one that looked at the rock and the inscriptions, and he looked at the 100-year period between 640 and 740, and he noticed that all these inscriptions, which are written in Arabic, they, have, they do have formula, but it's nothing to do with Islam. 
It's pious formula, which has much more to do with Christianity. It's not till 690 to 710 that the prophet Muhammad is introduced into these inscriptions. Muslim rites such as pilgrimages, prayers, and fasts are introduced about 720. And Muhammad as a man and the people called Muslims and the religion called Islam are not introduced until 730. That's over 100 years after Muhammad, if Muhammad even existed. It was only in the 730s onwards that there is evidence of popular devotion to a man named Muhammad as a prophet and messenger, which makes the Islamic traditions incredibly awkward. There is a hundred-year silence prior to this that indicates that Islam did not exist as a distinct religion until long after the time of Muhammad, which cast doubt on whether he had any part in starting Islam. I'm going to go through these real quickly. I, don't, I just want to show you what about the references to Muhammad in the 7th century. There are major references. There are four of them. Only the four references. Take a look at every one of these references to Muhammad in outside sources. Take a look. He is known as the Tayyaye de Muhammad. Muhammad the Tayyaye. Who are the Tayyaye? They were Lachmans. They lived in Iraq. So obviously the praised one is from Iraq. Look where Iraq is on a map. It's over 600 to 1,000 miles further north. What about in 636, the Arabs of Muhammad, which is in Yarmouk. Where is Yarmouk? It's, it's north of Israel. So obviously this is way too far north. Muhammad never went to Israel. I don't remember him ever being to Iraq. 660, Sabaeus talks about the Ishmaelite called Mahmed, who was aligned with 12,000 Israelites. First of all, that's not historical. There were no 12,000 Israelites who were going to war against the Byzantines. That never existed. So obviously, this is fraudulent. But nonetheless, look and see where this is. This is way up in Damascus. So that Muhammad, I don't recall Muhammad ever being that far north. And then you have John Barbankeya in 690 talking about a teacher and leader of the Arabs who obviously was named Muhammad. Who is this referring to? Look and see who the Arabs were. They were all Christians, but they were, non, they were not uh, Trinitarian Christians at this time. It's really John of Damascus who really identifies and sees for the first time the Muhammad we're starting to come across. And he does refer to it, uh, talks about Muhammad who comes with his ludicrous doctrines, comes with four books. The book called The Cow, which is now Surah 2. The book called Women, which is Surah 4. The book called The Table, which is Surah 5. And the book called The Camel, which is Surah Nothing. There is no camel Surah in the Quran. So obviously, whoever, whatever John Damascus is, it's not the Quran we know today. And the Quran is much bigger than just three Surahs. There's 114 of them in the Quran. So obviously, this means that there was no Quran that early. Every reference to Muhammad in the 7th century places him in Gaza, Jerusalem, Damascus, or Hira, which are all situated too far north and probably refer to another Muhammad, the praised one. Now we get to the Quran, and this is where it really gets really delicious. This is the best material, folks. Sit back. If you want to go to the toilet, you can do, but you'll miss everything. So let's go ahead. <laughs> what do the Muslims claim about the Quran? Number one, it's uncreated. It's right there in the Quran itself in chapter 85, verse 22. Therefore, it has not, never, on. It has never been had any chance that any human could have any control over it. It was sent down to Muhammad between 610 and 632. That's what they claim. It was completed by Uthman in 652. That's why this book in my hand right here is from Uthman, they say. And then number four, the Quran is unchanged in the last 1,400 years. Not one word, not one letter has changed. Have you heard Muslims say this? Every Muslim says those four things. Just memorize those four words. Uncreated, sent down, completed, Unchanged. That's all you need to know. I'll come back to it. I'm going to shut down those four, but I'm going to show you something even better about those four. Hold on. So what do Christians claim about the Bible? Is the Bible uncreated? No, of course it's created. We know who wrote it. We even know the authors. We put their names on most of the books. The Bible is not sent down. It was inspired by God, but not sent down. 
uh, through an angel. Bible was complete, so yes, we would say that that uh, was the case. The thing is, we don't have any of the original manuscripts, so we don't know what the complete is. Has it been changed? Yeah, parts of it has. We know where they've been changed. We know even what we even put, we're very transparent. We put and write where the, the verses that have been added or, or there have been scribal errors have been taken away. So we know that. We're very clear about that. And we're only talking about 40 verses out of over 6,000 verses. So tonight, I'm not going to shut down uncreated or sent down because I'm not there. I'm going to shut down complete and unchanged, those two. That's what I want to look at. So what I want to look for is one Quran manuscript from the 7th century that's complete, 114 surahs, that is unchanged. And this is what I've asked Muslims all over the world. I've debated uh, over 100 uh, debates that I've done with Muslims, and this is what I always ask. Show me one manuscript of your Quran from the 7th century that's unchanged, just like the Quran I have in my hand here. Where do we go to find out about the Quran? We have to go to Sahih Bukhari. Remember I told him that he died in 870, so he's the one that tells us how the Quran was put together. Now this is what he says. He says, Muhammad died in 632, it had not been written down. It finally got written down in its final form uh, at the time of Uthman in 652, the third caliph. He then sent five copies to five different cities, Mecca, Medina, Basra, Kufa, and Damascus. And those then became the the canonized Quran for the whole world. Uh, in 652. The problem is almost immediately another Quran supplants the one in Damascus by written by Ubay ibn Qab. It had 116 surahs. That's two more than are in the Quran today. Another was written in Baghdad, written by Ibn Masud. It had 110 surahs. That's, that's a four less than what is in the Quran today. Another was written by Ibn Musa, 114 surahs. It had so many differences. According to, according to Arthur Jeffrey, who's done the work on this, if you just look at those manuscripts and you compare it with the Quran today, there are about 15,000 differences. You've got a problem. So how could there have been one Quran? There were at least five Qurans in seventh, from the 7th century from Mecca, Medina, Basra, Kufa, and Damascus. We cannot find one of them. Now, one of those Qurans exists today. Folks, we're only talking about 1,400 years ago. As Christians, we have the Sidiaticus, the Galaxandrinus, we have the Vaticanus. These are from the 3rd and 4th century. That's two to 300 years before the Quran. Why can we reproduce our entire Bible? We have 365 manuscripts of the New Testament before the seventh century. Why can't they come up with one Quran from the seventh century? That's my question. They are the ones that claim it, not me. Where are these five manuscripts? Look at those cities. They've always been controlled by Islam for the last 1400 years. So how could they have lost it? Rather inept, wouldn't you say? So. We, before we get into the manuscripts, I want to look at the Kirat. These are the readings. This has probably done the most devastating material that's just come out in the last few years. These are the original manuscripts. Now, I say original means these are the earliest manuscripts. You notice when you read them, you can all read the Arabic. You notice you can't. Why can't you read that? Because in order to be an Ar- reader Arabic, you need to have dots and vowels, right? There are no dots and vowels on that. You need that. Why? Because those manuscripts, the Samarkand and the Sana, those ones had 16 letters, but you can't read it today unless you have vowels to help you out or dots. Today, there are 28 letters, so obviously another 12 letters were added. Why? Because of the dots. Now, there are six letters that don't require dots, like the alif, the kaf, the lam, the mim, the nu, ha, and the wow. The other 22 all require dots. What am I talking about? Well, take a look at one smiley face. One smiley face is usually the root of most letters in Arabic. If you put one dot up, you have a na. Two dots above, you have a ta. Three dots above, you have a tha. One dot below, you have a ba. Two dots below, you have a ya. Na, ta, tha, ba, ya. Five dots were added in the 8th century. Not in the 7th century. Now I can read it. 
But that didn't exist in the seventh century, not in those manuscripts you just saw. Hold on it, what about dialectical differences? You need to have three vowels to have dialectical differences. So you need to be, have a dama, uh, which is the u sound. You need to have a kasara, which is the e sound. And you need to have a fatta, which is the a sound. Those were only added in the late 8th century and the early 9th century. So you've got a problem here. Because suddenly you have Abdul Malik who comes to power and he wants to create a Quran because he's now introducing a prophet. A prophet has to have a book. So what do you do? You have to borrow right, left, and center. But the problem is you're borrowing in Arabic and you don't have any Arabic that has dots and vowels. So you decide to write your Quran with your dots in it and you call it Hafs. You decide to write your, well you're supposed to be a male, but let's say pretend you're male today. And you call it Warsh. And you decide to write your Quran and you put your dots and vowels wherever you want to. You live in Kufa, you live in Cairo, you live in Damascus, and you put your own dots wherever you want to, and you put your dots where you want to. Suddenly we have four different Qurans, right? In four different cities. Well, that starts to proliferate. Until the 10th century, there were 700 different Qurans. Did you hear me? 700 different Qurans. According to this man who did his doctoral thesis, he's now head of uh, the Islamic department at Harvard University. Shadi Nasser. He guessed the estimates because they're not there today. Now, you've got a problem. I've got all these Qurans, none of them are agreeing. You've got a difficulty. So Ibn Mujahid, man in the 10th century, was given the responsibility to choose seven. But before we do that, notice, if dots are in different places with different vowels, just with three different one of those little smiley faces, you get 19 different words. There's the difficulty. So here's what he did. He was given the responsibility to choose seven. And these are the first seven he chose. Nafi from Medina, Ibn Kathir from Mecca, Abu Amr from Basra, Ibn Amir from Damascus, Asim from Kufa, Hafsa from Kufa, and Al-Isqasai from Kufa. Notice, not, notice that three of them are from Kufa, one to Damascus, uh, the other one is, is, is from Basra, and the other two are from Arabia. Look at the dates. What do you notice about the dates of every one of those? Look at the death dates. Every one of them either died between 736 and 805. That means 8th and 9th century. Did any of these men know Muhammad? Did they even live in the same century as Muhammad? So how could they have come from Muhammad? These are the seven that every Muslim will swear came from Muhammad. But no one's dotted to look at their dates. I am the one that put the dates up there. You've got to put the dates together, folks. And this is where you're going to shut down every Muslim. They have no idea of these dates. Those are the first seven, but this book is not there. This is Hafs. This is the official book for the whole world today. Memorized by 93% of all Muslims. Hafs an Asim. You see Asim's name up there, number five? He is a disciple of Asim. So in 1194, two disciples were chosen from every one of the seven to make 14, right? And that was chosen by Al Shatabi in 1194. Now you have 7 plus 14. How many do you have? 21. Am I correct? I hope my math's right. That still isn't good enough. In the 15th century, in 429, another man named Al-Jazari chose another 9 to culminate with another 21. So now you have 30 different Qurans. No two are alike. But you've been told there's only one Quran. Right? And the one that was chosen by Saudi Arabia was the Hafs that you see there. Guess how many differences there are between Hafs and the other 29? 93,000. 93,000. This is the first time you're hearing this, right? I hope you people who are watching, you Muslims who are watching, you're listening to this. This is going to shut down your Quran for you. Who is the one that found this? 
Hatun Tosh, my colleague. She's only five foot two. She's from Turkey. In London, she and I were on the ladder for three years there at Speaker's Corner every Sunday. She was the one that found these by accident because she went to Morocco. She went to Yemen. She went to Jordan. And she went into a bookstore and says, show me a Quran. And they said, well, which Quran are you talking about? She said, what do you mean, which Quran? They said, well, we have Kaloon here. We have Hafs over here. We have Warsh over here. We have Kisai over here. We have Ibn Kathir. She said, well, give them all to me. So she brought them back to London, showed me them. And I looked at them and I said, oh, man, I started laughing. I thought these were all destroyed in 1924. They're in Cairo and thrown into the Nile. Evidently not. There they are. She has found now 26 of them. She brought 26 of them down to Speaker's Corner. We held them up in 2016. We filmed it and went all over the internet. This shut down the Quran in 2016. See the man that's there on the right, the tall man with the beard? His name is Muhammad Hijab. One of the most popular men on the internet. He has a following about anywhere from half a million to a million followers. He was there filming us when he was doing that. He realized there was a problem. He quickly went outside the crowd and he yelled at all the people, come to me. Do not look at what they're showing you. Do not listen to what they're saying. I will explain everything to you. Obviously, he explained it pretty well. Why? Because four years later, he was shown these material. I'm not going to go into all of these. You can go into every one of them, but you can see the huffs on the left, the waters on the right. In every case, it's completely different words. Just by changing the vowels, by changing the dots, you not only get different words, you get different meanings. You don't even get different meanings. You get different doctrines, you get different theologies, and you get different practices. It shuts down the Quran from being preserved. Obviously, these are all done by man. There's a problem there. And so he came to this man who's the leading authority there on the right, Yasser Qadi, there in Houston, and he said, I have a problem. I'm going to put my hand out here, and I'm going to, this is a blank piece of paper. Which Quran are you going to write on it? Which is the one that's eternal? Which is the one that was revealed to Muhammad? Tell me, which one of it? Remember, he was the one that told all the Muslims. He was going to explain it to them. Yasser Qadi says, we do not talk about this in public. This is the most difficult problem for Muslim scholars for the last thousand years. He said, we have a respect for the Quran. We, there are certain questions we don't ask. So Muhammad said, was well, that the problem you had when you were at Yale University getting your doctorate on this in 1995? Is that where you had a crisis of faith? He said, no, 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 not crisis of faith, crisis of knowledge. Notice the difference. He said, in the West, the scholars have come leaps and bounds in the last hundred years. And they're looking at you, pointing to Muhammad Hijab in the East, they're looking at you like the emperor with no clothes. Why? Because your standard narrative has holes in it. What narrative? Standard Islamic narrative. S-I-N has holes in it. Well, we know sin has holes in it. But can you see what happened? This was only a 28 long... This is really a question that was happening. It was an interview for 28 minutes. He didn't know we were all watching this. He said... I never have talked about this for 25 years. I will never do a lecture on this. So Muhammad Hijam put his hand out a second time. He said, you've got to tell me which is the one that's eternal. Because the Quran says in chapter 85, 22, 1 and 22, that this book is eternal. The Quran says in chapter 10, verse 15, and chapter 18, verse 27, that no man can change one word or even one letter. It says in the Quran, chapter 15, verse 9, that Allah protects his word. Which is the one? Yasser Qadi, after 28 minutes, finally had to give in. And he finally had to admit, they're all the Quran. All 30 of them. You take a little bit of Kaloon, you take a little bit of Warsh, you take a little bit of Hafs, and you just mix them out, and that's the Quran we have today. I started clapping. I was watching this live. I said, Yasser Qadi, you have no idea. You've just now admitted that there are 93,000 differences. I'm going to show you these two right here. These are two of them right here. There's the Hafs. Here's the Warsh. You can buy these on the Internet. 
This is the one that is memorized by 93% of the world's population. This is memorized by 3% of the world's population. This is from Egypt. This one is from Kufa in Iraq. There are 5,000 different words between these two books. I'm holding them right here. This shuts down the Quran. Within two weeks, if you looked at their sites, there were hundreds of Muslims. They said, we're leaving Islam because of what you have said. And our blood is going to be on your shoulders. They had to shut down those comments. Within two months, they had to take that video off of both their sites. But I've got it. David Wood has it. Hatun Tosh has it. And every June 8th of every year, we bring up that interview once over again and show the whole world. You cannot say that this comes from God. You cannot even say it comes from Muhammad. You can't even say it comes from Muthman. This has been changed and manipulated from the last 1,400 years. Now let's get to the manuscripts. Because the manuscripts we do have. Now, we have 8,500 Greek manuscripts, 10,000 Latin Vulgates, another 9,011 different languages. That's roughly 24,000 to 25,000 manuscripts of the New Testament alone. Am I correct? Just say yes. How many manuscripts do they have that are early? Six. You want to see them? There they are. The top copy from Turkey. The Samarkand from Uzbekistan. The Ma'il in London. The Petropolitanus. I'm sorry, I'm going the wrong way. From France. The Aluzaini there in Cairo, and the Sana manuscript, the most exciting, there in Yemen. I'm not going to unpack every one of them. These are the ones we're debating. I did a debate on these four, six manuscripts in 2014 with the world's leading scholar, Dr. Shabir Ali. He could not answer one question because he never looked at these manuscripts. I have three of them, the facsimiles of three of them in my office. We're looking at them. Folks, you know what we have found? No two of these manuscripts are from the 7th century. They're from the 8th, 9th, and 10th century. No two are alike. And they don't agree with the Quran we have today. The best one, the top copy, which is about 99%, has 2,270 manuscript variants. When you look at the Sana'a manuscript, it has two different layers of letters, and there are 63 verses in the lower layer. It has 70 variants just within those 63 verses. Can you see there's a problem here? I'm not going to get into these ones here. These are the carbon datings. But when you look at the carbon datings of the earliest manuscript, the Sana manuscript, they, the datings of the carbon datings of this manuscript, they are date from 390 to 550. They all predate the Quran. They predate Islam and they predate Muhammad, proving that carbon dating don't use. So they came up with this book here called the Birmingham Folios, the Birmingham Manuscript. Remember this in 2015? It was all over the internet. When you look at the Birmingham manuscript, it's only two pieces of paper, front and back. It's only 33 verses, and guess what? It's all about the seven sleepers of Ephesus, chapter 18. That has nothing to do with Islam. It's about the Proto-Evangelium of James. That has nothing to do with Islam. And it's about the story of Moses. That all predates Islam. All of these are in Arabic, and they are nothing to do with Islam. So what's going on? Hold on. I want to introduce this guy here, Dr. Dan Brubaker. He was in our conference this last weekend. You should have come. This man has just shut the Quran down because of this book right here. You need to buy this book. Basically, what he has done is he's taken the Muslims at their word, and he says, if there's no changes in the last 1,400 years, let's see if I can find changes. And he's looked, he's the only one that's looked at all the manuscripts, and he has found insertions. There you can see some there. He has found erasures. There you can see erasures there. He has found erasures overwritten. You can see them there in the red. He has found overwriting without erasures. 
He has found selective coverings. There are so many coverings in the middle one there. There are eight different coverings. What every case when you see insertions, when you have overriding, when you have any one of these references, these differences, what happens in every case? It brings it down to a standardization of the Huff's text. Means that this is censorship that's been going on for, for not 1,400 years. It's been going on since the 1300s. For 700 years, they've been changing these manuscripts to make them so they all are alike. Selective coverings overwritten and tapings. We went down to Speaker's Corner. I go down there whenever I'm in London. There's Hatuntosh, the five-foot-two lady that destroyed the Quran. They're on my left there. And we decided to introduce this book there at Speaker's Corner. While we were there, one of the leading scholars on the right there, Mansur Ahmad from Bangladesh, got up there and tried to shut us down. And he was making the claim that you can trace the Quran back all the way to the 7th century. So I turned to him and I say, okay, you can do that. Show me what manuscript you're talking about. It's not the Topkapi or the Samakan, it's not the Petropolitanus, you can't use the Husseini, and don't use the Ma'il manuscripts, and certainly don't use the Sana manuscript, because all of these are 8th, 9th, and 10th century. Which is the manuscript that goes back to the 7th century? He finally had to admit that there were 63, there was six, um, 96% of the Quran that they could find within the 1st century. That means between 622 and 721, or 719. Notice the 63 that he's talking about. These are the fragments that he has found. Notice we looked at every one of these fragments, none of them. Those ones I'm putting up there, there's, no one has come to any conclusion on those 20. The next nine are all after 6, uh, 7, uh, 19, so they shouldn't have used those uh, nine. And the next 34, no one's done any work in. Which means he has basically, what the Muslims have done, they've just created manuscripts or fragments. Most of these are just one or two verses. They've tried to come up with 63, to come up with 96% of the Quran, and they're all, none of them can be used from the first century of Islam. Ooh, I love it. It makes my job so easy. <laughs> Thus, none of them are really valid, since all of them are either later or tentatively dated or have no supporting evidence. So, where did the Quran that we have in our hand, where did it come from? This book right here. It was chosen in 1924 by one scholar named Muhammad al Husseini al-Haddad. Why? Because they were having such problem amongst the, unit, the high school kids there in the city of Cairo. They were having 30 different answers for all the questions. They went to Muhammad al Husseini al-Haddad and said, choose one. And he chose this one. What did they do with the other 29? Threw them into the Nile, like I said earlier, thinking that would get rid of them. They didn't count on Hatun Tosh, five foot two lady, <laughs> to decide to find them in 2013. Nonetheless, that was so successful of choosing one Quran that by 1936, it was then chosen as the Quran for the entire country of Egypt. By 1985, the Saudi Arabian government saw how successful that model was, so they chose it for the whole world in 1985. How many people are older or are living in 1985? Just raise your hands. That means every one of you who's raising your hand is now older than the Quran. Oh boy, that must make you feel old. <laughs> but now we're coming to the best. This is the last thing. And this is lovely. See, you'd like to know where the Quran really comes from, right? I'd like to know where the Quran really comes from. Because if you're having to put together a book because a man had, has been chosen who writes the book, you don't have anything at hand. What are you going to do? You're going to borrow, are you not? So this is exactly what happened in the 8th, in the 9th, in the 10th century. But what did they borrow? Let me introduce this man here, Dr. Gunther Luling, who was a German scholar. He did his doctorate in 1970, and as he looked at the Quran, he noticed that there was some beautiful poetry in the Quran. He said, I've seen that before. So he took those five dots off, and he took the three vowels out, and replaced them with Syriac Nabataean dots, or Syriac Nabataean Syriac, or Syriac documents. 
put the Syriac dots back in and put the vowels back in. And guess what he found? That these beautiful poetry were Christian hymns written by Christians about Jesus Christ. This was found in 1970. As a result of that, he was such an embarrassment for the academia there in Germany that he, though he received in his doctoral the Eximum Opus, which is the highest grade you could get in Germany, which means that you should be given a professorship in any university of your choice, he was thrown out of academia and he went into obscurity for 30 years. Lived on welfare with his wife. I met him in 1998. I saw, I said, could I see your doctorate? I took it back to England and I got it from Germany. German and put it into English. Now remember, when he writes, one sentence is 400 words long. That's how the academics do it in Germany. We had to bring it down so people could manage it. We got it written in English. It could not, would not, they would not publish it there in Germany, so that he had to get it published in India. But because of that, there you can see it right there, the challenge to Islam for Reformation. Don't read that. You should need to read the, the straw, small print. He then was able, then was resurrected because it was all over the English-speaking world. And he died a happy man in 2014. Now, Dr. Christoph Luxemburg decided to go one step further. He's also a German, but that's not his real name, because he will be killed for what he has found. He decided to do what Gunther Lüdingen did, but he decided to look at the dark passages. 25% of the Quran, no one understands. Not even the scholars understand it. A quarter of the Quran, even the scholars don't understand. Did you know that? Can you understand the whole Bible? Certainly you can. When Jack Hibb gets up here, does he open the Bible? Please say yes. Does he read it? Please say yes. yes. Does he unpack it for you? Yes. And does he apply it to your lives? Yes. Why? Because you can understand every word of it. Yes. And you can understand it in English, right? Yes. Thank God for our Bible. But see, you can't do that with the Quran. You can't do that with the Quran. You can't understand these 25. So what are you going to do? Well, he decided to do what Gunther Luling did, and he took and went to every one of those passages and he went through seven layers. I won't go and pack each one of them. He went through seven layers, taking off the vowels, taking off the dots, looking at the lexicons, looking and seeing if you could find any Arabic words. You couldn't find any there. So he went to Syriac, put the dots back in, put the vowels in, and he went to the lexicons there in Syriac, and guess what you could find? He could reproduce all the 25%. All the dark passages he was able to reproduce. But what did he find? Once he took the Arab Quran and put it to its Aramaic roots, all the dark passages were Christian lectionaries, Christian homilies, and Christian hymns. Every lectionary homily hymn was about Jesus Christ. It had nothing to do with what they found, but who they found. Folks, there are four textual evolutions. I'm not going to go with them today, but can you see what we're doing? I want to ask the same question of the Quran and come to the same conclusion. Remember I said at the very beginning, the Muslims have four things that they demand of the Quran. It must be eternal. It must be sent down, it must be complete, and unchanged. I think we shut that down tonight, have we not? And we would not say the same thing about our Word of God, the Bible. But hold on a minute. Is the Bible the only Word of God we have? Don't we have someone who's also called the Word of God, the Logos? Jesus Christ? Let's apply those four to him. Is Jesus Christ eternal? Number one. Was Jesus Christ sent down? Number two, is Jesus complete? Yes. Number three, is Jesus unchanged? Absolutely. Everything the Muslims need, we've got. 
Thus, the four criteria Muslims are looking for in their Quran as their primary revelation, we already have in Jesus Christ our primary revelation. Folks, we need to bring them home to a much greater and a better revelation. And what's his name? Jesus. What's his name? Jesus. Oh, I love it. What a name. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we've gone and we've unpacked these three areas, we've looked at the book, The Man and the Place. We've also looked at the sources. Lord, when we look at these and we realize just how hopeless and impractical Islam is, when we look and see that this is not a man who lived in the 7th century, oh, there were many people called Muhammad, the praised one. Of course, possibly even you were called that when you were here. But Lord, when we look and see who he is and what, that, what has become of him and what David put to it's not a man I want to follow. When we look at the Quran and we see that there was no Quran in the 7th century, there was not even a city called Mecca. Lord, everything they're dependent on, on those three things, we've now just using 7th century, we have shut down. Lord, they still want to know you. They still want to believe in God. And they still want to be brought home. And Lord, we're the only ones that can do that. Lord, I want to bring them back to a better God, a bigger God, a better book, a bigger book, a better Jesus, a bigger Jesus. I want to bring them back to you because we're the only ones that have the antidote. Though we can shut it down, that's not in the reason. I don't want to shut down their man, God, and book. I want to bring them back to our man, God, and book. Lord, that's something we've got to do. The atheists can't do this. The humanists can't do this because all they give them is nihilism in response. I love these Muslims. They're my favorite people. I've worked with them for 40 years. I wouldn't be wasting my time if I didn't love them. I want them to know you. And the only way I can do that is to bring them back to you. What a God you are, a God who enters time and space. What a God you are, a God who gave us his revelation. What a God you are, because you came and died for us and rose again. And that's the God they need to know. Lord, help every one of us who's here and those who are watching. Let's bring them home. Let's bring them home. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <laughs>